Okay, I'll pray. Lord, we just thank you that we can gather today. Thank you for the glorious morning that you've given us, the sun, uh, the brisk temperatures, and just the, the way that we're starting to see the world wake up, Lord. Lord, you've reigned from all eternity and, and continue to do so today, Lord, and, and that uh, is a motivation for us to keep going, knowing that we get to see and experience all that uh, you have planned for us, Lord. I pray that you would cause us to see and understand you more today, that we ourselves might be humbled by you, and uh, that we might find even more of the grace that uh, you have in store for us because we have uh, brought ourselves to you lowly and, and small compared to such a great and awesome God. Pray that you give us opportunities to encourage one another today and that uh, in your word uh, we'll find the basis for that encouragement. It's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen. I do want to silence this there. I do want to uh, jump back to last week and um, question was raised, did, was there church back in Genesis because um, it sounded like I said that maybe there was. So I went back and listened to um, last week's lesson. And I think what the confusion was is, is I was comparing the upbringing of Lot's children to the upbringing of our children today and those of you who are raised in the church. And they had a similar experience, not that their experience was that they were raised in the church, but because the church doesn't exist until Pentecost, but they were raised in an environment where they would have known the stories and known the promises of God and been taught and seen the worship of God in their uncle Abraham, as well as, well, the great uncle Abraham, but in their uncle Abraham, as well as uh, the community that was his household as they would uh, settle in an area and worship God. So I apologize for any confusion that may have brought. And just to, again, be clear, if I say things like that, it's terrifying to me. Um, so please come and tell me so that I don't speak wrongly about what's in there. So today we are uh, in chapter 20 and probably get through chapter 21. Um, and then the next two weeks we're back in Daniel because I'm on this next weekend. And then there'll be two weeks in May as well that that I'll be uh, gone and, and we'll be back in, in Daniel again. So again, I, I appreciate Matt Dwiggins doing that for us. So Genesis 20, uh, and we'll start there, verse one. Now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev, or the, the south land in, in Israel, and settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he sojourned in Gerar. Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, she is my sister, said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. And so recurring theme here, whenever we go south, we apparently get afraid and, and terrified that the people of the land are bigger than God. And Abraham again enters into this deceitful uh, situation where he is un willing to claim Sarah as his wife because of her beauty. Now, how old is Sarah here? <laughs> old, 89, 90 years old. Um, does anyone know uh, Mimi Dwork? Elise does. None of the rest of you, did anybody know the Dworks in Lincoln? Okay, Mimi DeWork at 90 doesn't look a day over 60 and just amazing. And I know her mind's slipping and everything, but she was grandmother to friends I grew up with. And uh, she's as sharp as a tack when it comes to all of her great-grandchildren and children and probably great-great-grand... Yeah, there's several generations. And what's that? Pat? Pat, yes. Pat Dwork. Mimi, her oldest grandchild called her Mimi and that name is stuck. Anyway, so I, I've seen people who maintain some semblance of beauty, but I don't think people are, are asking Grandma Mimi to be a, a supermodel for them for the, selling their products. But still, um, we have here a 90-year-old woman who is 
drop dead gorgeous. And she's going to live another 37 years or so. So again, they're traveling down um, and uh, her beauty is such that Abraham knows that when they arrive, her reputation is going to spread throughout the land. And sure enough, uh, Abimelech, the king there, sends for and takes Sarah. So then we have the situation that brings up in verse three, but God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman who you have taken for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her and he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister and she herself said, he is my brother in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart, you have done this. And I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet. And he will pray for you and you will live. But, you do not, but if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all of yours, or all who are yours. So Abimelech has this dream where he's having a conversation with God, and we're going to see it's a terrifying dream, as one might expect, getting to meet and talk with God. But Abimelech sees and recognizes the value and the sanctity of marriage here, because that's the challenge that, that God gives him here, um, Abimelech says, uh, or God says to Abimelech, you're a dead man because the woman you have taken for she is married. And, and Abimelech realizes that if that's true, he's guilty. So this pagan nation that Abraham is sojourning in, uh, who Abraham describes as there's no fear of God before their eyes, there apparently is some sort of law written on their hearts that says, you leave a married woman alone that family still has value. So that's the first interesting thing we see. We see one, he's having a conversation with the almighty God and granted it's in a dream, they aren't face to face. But we also see that Abimelech has a value or values and, and believes in the sanctity of marriage. Um, and then we see Abimelech plead his innocence here. And what's interesting is the way that this is set as we progress through this chapter is they go out of their way to make sure that not only does Abraham know, but everyone else in the land and us now know that Sarah is innocent in all this and there was no physical relationship between the two of them, which is really important because of the promise that was made right before this, which is that Sarah, you're going to have Isaac here pretty soon. So there's no question about the paternity of Isaac. And it even, it even becomes more clear as we progress here. But this is the first indication where in the dream, Abimelech in private is admitting to God Almighty that I have not touched her. That's very, very important. So then God steps in and says, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart, you have done this. In other words, you have been innocent in this. And I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. So from Abimelech's standpoint, and this is going to become recurrent through the rest of Genesis, Abimelech's viewpoint is I did not touch her. What's God's viewpoint? And I stopped you from touching her. So not only did God sovereignly control this situation, he did so through the means of Abimelech exercising a decision not to touch her. So there's still responsibility on Abimelech's part because if he had, God would have you'd been done. But God kept him from it. God actually stepped in and controlled the situation through 
the decision of Abimelech. God is the one who did it. Not only that, but God knows, and this is amazing, you'll see this throughout scripture, God not only knows the future, but he knows possible futures. If this would have happened, if I had refrained from withholding you, that could have happened or that would have happened. And we see that in other situations where God knows what would happen if something that didn't happen, happened. What if I made this decision in my life? What would have occurred? God actually knows the answers to that. He's planning it. He's controlling it. He's a providential God in all these things. And he's providential not just in the lives of his own, but also in this pagan king to accomplish his will. We've seen him accomplishing his will and being sovereign over cities or nations just recently in Sodom and Gomorrah. And now we see him actually involved in individual decisions, knowing our hearts, knowing the what ifs, and also acting to, to keep us from acting upon our natural impulses. Abimelech didn't take Sarah as a wife in order to put her on display. He took her as a wife for the reasons one takes a wife, at least in part. Yet God kept him from acting out on those natural impulses. So God then turns and, and through his own mercy gives in verse 7 a way of escape for Abimelech. He says, now therefore restore the man's wife for he is a prophet and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all of yours. It's an interesting description of Abraham in this conversation. He said here to be a prophet and he can intercede for you. Well, he's the one who put you in this situation. You're not in this situation if this prophet, this man of God doesn't lie, doesn't deceive you about who his wife is. But God still holds Abraham in that position and says, no, he's the man who can intercede for you. Restore his wife and he's gonna pray for you but if you don't, then you're going to die. So the other thing here to note is that in his ignorance, Abimelech was still going to be held guilty to the point of death of him and those around him. Even though he did not do anything knowledgeable to him that he had done anything wrong. And it's important for us as well. In fact, Abimelech acknowledges that, hey, I'm innocent, um, but I also need to go and do this thing, need to go to Abraham and have him pray for me, even in my innocence. And we see that where in the, in the uh, uh, Mosaic law, part of the law is to make sacrifices for the sins that you do in ignorance. And so we see that, again, there's even sin when you don't even realize it, and you still need intercession even in your ignorance. Um, this would be different than the sin that David commits. We see here that there's a sin that Abimelech commits that would have caused the death of not only him in an ignorant sin, but also the, all of those who are in his household. Um, but over in 2 Samuel 24, we see a sin of David that results in the punishment of all the nation of Israel as well. And that is David decides to count all the people. And he wants to count all the people. And in doing so, I should probably turn over there. In doing so, counting all the people, why is that wrong? Does anyone know why it's wrong that David decided to count all the people? It is because God said, don't do it. <laughs> don't count all the people. Don't number the people. Don't take a census. Because what, what David's goal here is, is to see how great and awesome he is. How great is the country? Let's take a look and see how great we are. As soon as he finishes in verse 10, uh, 2 Samuel 24, 10, David's heart is troubled after he had numbered all the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly and what I have done. Now, God, please take away the iniquity of your servant. And what happens is God ends up sending a pestilence upon the people 
for David's sin. As a leader of the people, all the people around him are punished. And, and it should be a, uh, it should kind of strike us as being, well, that's not fair. The king in Abimelech's case, in David's case, it's David sins directly against God. In fact, he's warned, don't do this. He does it anyway. He sins directly against God, immediately knows that he sinned against God, and God does send an angel to to start destroying people. Um, Down in 15, Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and 70,000 men of the people from Dan and Beersheba died. 70,000. When the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, it is enough, now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So we see that, or I should read 17 because it concludes it, but David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking down the people and said, behold, it is I who have sinned and it is I who have done wrong. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. The leader of the nation in their actions brought about punishment for all the people. And we see that here in Abimelech's case as well. His sin is, is in ignorance, but even so, it's sin against God, against his people, and God is going to punish Abimelech, not only Abimelech, but everyone around him. In fact, we see later in this that there was a, a punishment that was being occurred, incurred on Abimelech and his people. It's just, again, some of the subtle insights that we see of who God is and how he deals with nations and how he deals with individuals that I think is important. So in verse 8, Abimelech arose early in the morning. This probably isn't he got up at 7.30 instead of 8. This is probably he gets up just as soon as his body, as soon as the dream is done and his body comes to being awakened again, he remembers his dream. And so he rises early in the morning and calls all his servants and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were greatly frightened. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Abimelech understands right and wrong. And he understands what this supposed prophet of God, this man of God has done to him. Abraham said, because I thought surely there is no fear of God in this place, they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is the kindness which you shall show me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. So Sarah and the two of them had this agreement from the time he wandered from his father's house. So from the time he left Ur, or you could even say from Terah, is that the second place I went? I forget. Terah's his dad. Hebron. From the time they were left Hebron, then after his father had died, this has been their story. And he's been doing it. It's already got him into trouble once and he didn't learn from it. It got him into trouble when they were down in Egypt and now it's getting them into trouble with Abimelech. And so Abraham and, and Sarah have this, this little plan. Now, again, we see here that Abraham and Sarah are half brother, half, half brother and sister. Um, and uh, they aren't, they are fairly closely related. And I think we looked at that, that there's kind of a bush going on in the family tree rather than where things are intertwined a little more than what we see today. A little more accepted back then. And we're going to get to that again when we end up having Isaac get a, get a wife. Um, so, Abimelech is terrified because he believes that God will do what he says. Abimelech has no indication here of faltering when he hears the word of the Lord spoken to him. He's terrified. He believes that God will do what he said. He accuses Abraham, but at the same time honors him as being greater than himself. He's, he is questioning Abraham and what Abraham has done. Abraham's in the foreign area that he's not normally at in this situation. He's within Abimelech's reign, but Abimelech gives him honor here above what he needed to. And 
it is interesting that Abraham explains the situation, but doesn't mention the fact that, oh yeah, and last time we did this in Egypt, it didn't work out so well either. Um, he also leaves out the whole part about the shame that this all brought upon Sarah, uh, that he kind of leaves her hanging here. He allows her to be taken as a wife of another man and doesn't do anything to stop it from happening. Not a, not a very chivalrous action on the part of Abraham, and neither he nor Sarah is very trusting that God can watch over them, for she is complicit in this as well. And then in verse 14, Abimelech then took sheep and oxen, male and female servants, and gave them to Abraham and restored his wife Sarah to him. Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you settle wherever you please. To Sarah, he says, behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it is your vindication before all who are with you and all men, you are cleared. So we see here that restitution is made for Sarah to such a degree that it's clear to the people around them that nothing untoward has happened between Abimelech and Sarah. The purity of Sarah is kept here. The purity of her marriage is kept here and displayed by Abimelech humbling, humbling himself. Whereas if that had occurred, the reaction would not be to give her great wealth and riches as a form of apology. If anything, it would be to use as a cheap cigarette and throw the trash away later. That's not the action of, of a man who is, who is contrite and restoring a woman who he holds in high regard. That high regard is often lost uh, when a man uses a woman in that way. But here we see that the high regard is still in place. And again, that's important because Isaac is about to be born and we need to know who his, who his father is, right? So we see then in there in verse 17, Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maid so that they bore children for the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So we see the intercession that God said needed to take place between Abimelech and God through the prophet who is Abraham. And so Abraham prays to God on his behalf. And at this point, the wombs of all the people associated with Abimelech, and there would have probably been dozens or even hundreds, um, are now, uh, the wombs are now opened again so that children can again be had. It makes you wonder how long this situation was going on. I would say it's at least three months. It could be longer. It's really difficult to know for sure. It wasn't a super long time, but you get enough women. And there, there was clearly evidence that, hey, nobody is conceiving, nobody is giving birth. And it may be that they didn't realize that for another six or seven months. And it's like, nobody's pregnant. Um, because it's not like they could run down and get a pregnancy test and see what was going on. So the doctor in me is like, how would this work and what's the timing involved? But, um, but God does in fact open the wombs of Abimelech's household. Um, so this at least was going on for a few weeks, I would say close to about three months or so, um, because you have to remember that Sarah is promised Isaac within a year and it's happened before that. Um, so this is within that one year of promise of Isaac and Isaac being born. There's a chance she was already pregnant uh, when she went to Abimelech's household. Um, but that does bring up a point here and that God is in control of the giving and withholding of children. Um, and that isn't, that isn't because of wrong done by a person, but it is all in God's hands. And this is a recurring theme throughout here. You have to remember that Abraham sojourns into a land that he will never have as his own possession. He's gonna buy a little piece of it for uh, Sarah's tomb here in a couple of chapters, but he never takes possession of this land. And he's promised great descendants. And at this point, all he has is Ishmael, and his head servant as the two people that could be heirs to his throne. The promise that's made to him is not yet fulfilled. We have other instances throughout the Old Testament 
um, where women long for children and it's all within God's control. It's all within God's hands. And we often think that that children are a gift of God and that's true, and, but we need to recognize that the withholding of children is within God's hand as well. And the joy and the sorrow of those two extremes are, are some of the greatest emotions that we face as people today. Um, the worst thing you could do with a situation like that is to just say flippantly that children are a gift of the Lord. Or if you don't have children, well, it's in God's plan. Um, We still are humbled by God and we still feel with those people because it is a great sorrow. It is a great pain because they are a great gift and and we don't understand the way of the Lord. But this is just one more reminder that those things are, are in God's control. They're in God's hands. So leading through this, I think the reason that we see this passage in here is in the context of this, and again, we've kind of focused on that as we're marching through here, is that uh, the purity of Sarah that it is kept, the fact that Abraham is not a perfect man, the fact that he is a sojourner in the land, because this, this area is kind of south, like I said, this is actually part that is promised to Abraham at some point. Abraham is looking towards that day and it's descendants that are going to be able, God has declared to him, it's your descendants that will inherit this land. Um, but Abraham is looking towards that and we're, we're marching towards Isaac being born. And, and Abraham and Sarah have, have been barren until this point and remain so. Moving on then to chapter 21, we do have the birth of Isaac. 21.1, then the Lord took note of Sarah and he said, and as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of the son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned and Abraham was made, made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. So God fulfills what he has spoken And as students of the Bible, we shouldn't be shocked at that. And yet, uh, this is one more of those small stones that builds into the mighty fortress that is the reliance upon God and his word that we see here that he's promised to Abraham and Sarah a child and he has done all that he has said. His yes is yes. So Sarah conceives and bears a son to Abraham at the appointed time. It's all within the appointed time. And we see the appointed time mentioned again and again. Remember that Christ came at the appointed time. Uh, We see that uh, John the Baptist comes at the appointed time. We see these miraculous births all happening within God's control. God takes special interest in the births of people and their timing. And then we see that this child's name is Isaac. And as you'll remember, Isaac means laughter. And if you turn back to chapter 18, verse 12, where we're introduced to that, we have God and Abraham, God visiting Abraham in some bodily form. And in verse 10 says, uh, I will surely return to you at this time next year. Behold, Sarah, your wife will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent of the door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were advanced in age and Sarah was past childbirth. Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also. And we wouldn't say that she laughed in that situation as a laugh of joy, and it's not a laugh of, of celebration. It's a laugh of cynicism. 
she, she's scoffing almost in laughter. Shall I bear a child to Abraham when we're both so old? So we see this cynical laughter. But now we see that laughter change. In verse six of chapter 21, Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone here will laugh with me. Now we see her laughter is a joyous laughter of being a parent. She's overwhelmed by the joy and we see her laughing. Then we see the, the celebration that takes place, the laughter that comes that's different than just the laughter of her own personal joy, but the celebratory laughter of a, of a great group that are gathered together to celebrate this great and awesome thing that no one can understand how has this happened where we see that everyone who hears will laugh with me. In fact, we see this move then into, uh, well, verse seven even refers back to the cynicism she had before, but then verse eight, the child grows and is weaned and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. The incredible joy that comes with the birth of Isaac, the raising of Isaac and the weaning of Isaac. This is, this is the one thing that's palpable that he can feel of the promises of God that he's been given. This is the first thing he has to actually hold on to. He can actually hold this in his arms. He is still a sojourner in the land. He has no heirs and God has given him this child and he has him to enjoy. And we think about, well, weaning, when does weaning take place? It probably took place in this culture somewhere around two to three but it may actually be referring to later in his life. But that's the most dangerous time for us, to be honest. Aside from once you hit 90, um, your chance of dying, and even then it's, I think when you're 90, if you make it to 90, your life expectancy, does anyone want to guess what it is? It's like four to six years. So if you've made it that far, you're probably going to keep going for a few more years. If you're a newborn in this environment where Isaac is born to get through those first couple of years, your chances aren't great. Your life expectancy actually increases as you get older because you've survived these terrible years. And here we have them celebrating when he's survived that, the infancy and early childhood and now he's turning into a young boy and there's a great celebration that is on top of, yes, he's born and now it's clear uh, I have an heir. I have a son who's going to be able to carry on the name, who is an actual promise of God that is going to continue what God has promised in other ways as well. And we jump all the way back again to Genesis 3, where God promises a seed. And that's what we're seeing here. That's why this is important. That's why the birth of Isaac and the celebration of Isaac and the celebration of him being weaned is so important. So we do see um, this as it goes on. Isaac would have been circumcised and uh, he would have been part of that covenant that God made with Abraham, not only as a physical heir of Abraham, but moving towards in that spiritual heir as well. So then we have a problem because we have, as I stated earlier, right now the, the heir of Abraham would have been Ishmael if Ishmael's still around, and, and he is at this point, and Ishmael, I think when he was circumcised, was like 13 years old, 12 or 13 years old. And so he's a year older, plus a couple more years. So you figure Ishmael's probably 15, somewhere around there. Um, and we have a problem because we have two heirs, and that's probably part of the issue working in here. The ultimate issue here is it was a really bad idea when Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham to get a son and the, the strife that that put between Hagar and Sarah. So Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking or playing or um, acting out. Therefore, she said to Abraham, drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. And the matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. You remember that Abraham was fine with Ishmael. Why not, why not Ishmael be my heir? Why not Ishmael be the one who the promise comes through? Um, 
He's raised him through those early adolescent years. Ishmael's probably just right about now becoming a difficult child to raise, um, those hard teenage years. But he's raised him up to this point, and there's a bond between Abraham and his son, as one would expect. Again, children are a gift to the Lord, and Abraham greatly valued his son. And this division between Sarah and Hagar that's taken place, even though Isaac is the ultimate heir, um, it continues. But God says to Abraham, do not be distressed because because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. Your descendants shall be named. So do understand that what God is not saying here is Sarah is right. Punish Hagar and Ishmael and get them out of here. I don't want them around anymore. What he is saying is listen and do what Sarah is telling you. Period. Well, not period. Listen to it because, because Isaac is the one who's, who is your descendant. And then he continues, and the son of the maid, I will make a nation also because he is your descendant. So he gives Abraham reassurance. Listen, it's going to be okay if you follow through with what Sarah says. Send them out. I'm going to protect them. I have a plan for him as well. You're not just casting him out to be on his own forever and, or to his death. So Abraham rises early and, and remember that Sarah said, drive out this maid. This doesn't look like driving out the maid and her son. Abraham rose early in the morning, takes bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder and gave her the boy and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. So we see that Abraham rises on his own and cares for them as he sends them on his way. It must have been a very sad moment, at least between Abraham and his son, and and probably not a lot of understanding of why this has to be, but at the same time, everyone involved would understand that that this is the relationship between Abraham and Hagar was not the natural one that should have been in place and, and would have understood now with how long Isaac's been around that, that uh, the basis for doing this is the, the trouble between who is the heir and who will be the rightful heir of Abraham and his promises of God. So they go off and they start wandering around in Beersheba. And in verse 15, when the water of the skin was used up, she left the boy under one of the bushes. This isn't a little boy. This is big boy left the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him about a bow shot away, for she said, do not let me see the boy die. And she sat opposite and lifted up her voice and wept. So they've gotten to the point where both a grown woman and her teenage son are spent and they realize that death is upon them and that they've, there's just too much and they can't go any further. But we have God here intervening. God heard the lad cry. Over and over again in the Old Testament, God hears the crying of people and responds. We have a great, merciful God. So God hears the lad crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what is the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and, he saw, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. God was with the lad and he grew and he lived in the wilderness and became an archer. And he lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. And there, there we kind of leave off the story of who Ishmael is and Ishmael and his mother have left. They're establishing a family of their own. Um, Lots of wells in Beersheba we're going to find out. I have this picture where she wakes up and she goes, oh, there's a well right there. Um, well, I didn't see that. I assume God put a well in place. Uh, he provides for them and uh, they survive this and they go on and God keeps saying over and over again, he's gonna be a great nation. How many times has he said that? I think it's five now, five times he's spoken of Ishmael, Ishmael as, ha- as becoming a great nation. And in order for that to happen, he's gotta survive. So don't worry, I will provide for you. And sure enough, he does. And they survive. Now, what is interesting and what is leading up to chapter 24 is when they get a wife for 
Isaac, we're going to see that they go back to Abraham and Sarah's original family to find a wife. Don't get a wife from the land of Canaan. Here we see that Hagar gets a wife for Ishmael from the land of Egypt. And the land of Egypt we've seen over and over and over again is representative of the world, representative of uh, fleshly concerns, representative of uh, material um, not only monetary material, but also uh, we see trusting in the, the chariots of Egypt, trusting in the armies of Egypt. Over and over again, we look back to Egypt. And here we see that Ishmael, basically, I think this is an indication that Ishmael and his descendants will be people of the earth, people of the land, people of the material world, of the temporal world, not a spiritual people in the sense that the, the people of Israel will become. But we see that he, he does become a great archer. This could be that he becomes a, not only a great hunter, but a, a man of war, um, a great man, and he's going to become his own nation. So Ishmael is cast out, and we're left with just Isaac now, and we're going to continue on with that. Yeah. No, literally. Oh, yeah, literally. From the land of Egypt, yeah. But also we see that connect, whenever there's a connection with Egypt, it's never a good thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's literally uh, an Egyptian woman is his wife. And... Where you get your wife from has a great influence on you over and over and over again. Well, think of Solomon. And what, what, did, what was his problem? Why was he not to have a bunch of wives? Does anyone remember what God tells him? They'll lead him astray. Yeah, they're going to influence you and what becomes of you. So here we see him marrying someone from Egypt. He's going to have the influence of, of the Egyptian culture now on him and all his offspring. So when we go to Isaac getting a, at the beginning of chapter 24, maybe, um, he makes his servant swear and we'll get into that. Um, in verse three, you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but you will go to my country, to my relatives, and take a wife for my son Isaac. So the, it is very important, the upbringing and the culture of which you marry into. And... Those of you who are married know the influence that your in-laws have on you and your children and your, because they're their grandchildren, they're going to be involved. And not only that, but the way that your spouse is raised um, versus the way you're raised, if you're not careful, you end up with a lot more headache than what uh, you may have had otherwise. But this is very important in this, especially as we're nation building. We're actually... In the, in the literal sense, not the sense we use it today, um, but in the literal sense, these are the births of nations that are taking place. And so, yeah, this is both the literal married someone from Egypt and then the outcome of that is the type of people that they're going to become. So then covenant with Abimelech, and this actually goes, this we're just gonna cover because it's going to be important here with Isaac after he's, what, chapter 20, 26, Isaac's going to go down to Gerar again, and we're going to see stupidity happen all over again. Um, but this kind of lays the groundwork for that, so we're just going to cover it today uh, very briefly. So verse 22, and it came about at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or my offspring or with my posterity, but according to your kindness that I have shown you, you shall show to me into the land in which you have sojourned, Abraham said, I swear it. But Abraham complained to Abimelech because of the well of water which the servants of Abimelech had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor did I hear of it until today. And Abraham said, I'm telling you now, so fix it. Oh, wait, no, that's not in there. I did not hear about it until today. Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. 
Then Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. Abimelech said to Abraham, what do these seven ewe lambs mean, which you have set by themselves? And he said, you shall take these seven ewe lambs from my hand so that it may be a witness to me that I dug this well. Therefore, he called that place Beersheba because there the two of them took an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba and Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, arose and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. So we have... Abimelech and Abraham. Remember, Abimelech has invited Abraham to stay in the land. Uh, He's going to do that. Uh, There is a covenant here that's put between Abimelech and Abraham. And we see this well that is named, in the area is named Beersheba. Um, And we're going to see that this is the wilderness of Beersheba is where uh, Hagar and Abraham Ishmael end up. And so it's just kind of filling in the gap and preparing us for things that are to come here in the future between Abimelech and Isaac himself. But we see again a covenant made. We see not only a covenant made between, or a, a, uh, um, well, for them, yeah, it'd be an agreement or a covenant made between the two of them. And then we see in addition to that, Abraham defines that he gives him seven ewe lambs and he says, why have you given me seven ewe lambs? We already have a covenant. He goes, well, this is for the well. And every time you look at the well, you can go back and say, oh yeah, I do have uh, these seven lambs he gave me that say that, yeah, just to remind me that this well is Abraham's and they're ewe lambs. So they're gonna go on and continue to produce for him and, and he'll end up with a whole entire flock of sheep off of these seven lambs that Abraham gives him. And it will always be a reminder to him of that. So now we're set. We finally got to to the end of 21. And what we found is that God has provided, as I said, the seed in the next step. This isn't the seed, obviously not the one that's going to save us all, not the one that's going to crush the serpent, but is the one that carries this on, is the one that God has promised um, to lead forward his people. Questions or concerns today? We actually have time for Comments, questions, complaints. Is there a the, tree? the tamarisk tree? I don't know what a tamarisk tree is. Tell me what a tamarisk tree is. I wonder if there's still tamarisk trees there. That would be kind of cool. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not exactly sure what the. Um, other than that, it would it would be there, and as a mark of more than just one point in time, that going forward, that it's known. Yes, but we're gonna we're gonna have Isaac digging, like I said, digging wells all over the place. <laughs> here a little bit. Oh, and the other, the other thing to note here is that this is the land of the Philistines. So a lot Philistines were on a, on a map, get this right, on a map on the western edge of, the western border of Israel is what? Mediterranean Sea, yeah. And so the Philistines were a people that traded and had boats that could go out on the sea and come and go. And so this is that area all along Let's see for you guys all along the western coast, um, kind of leading down into Egypt, and so you'll see the the term that um, we kind of jump from Abimelech's land and the land of Gerar and um, the land of the Philistines and uh, the Negev, and so all those things. That's kind of all that same area. So that's another point to to make. So he's down in that southern area near the, the farthest south area where Israel's country is. I think it's a... If they hadn't 
Yes. Yeah, so if all they needed to do was leave Egypt and go to the promised land, this is the area they, they shoot straight through. Does anyone know why they didn't do that? Because God said, if I have you do that, this is another one of those where God knows the what ifs. If I have you do that, you're gonna come against these mighty fortresses of the Philistines and you'd lose heart immediately. And so he was gonna bring them all the way around and come into the country from the east and let them build up courage as they went along. Very gracious of God um, to do it that way. And the Philistines are the ones that are present all the way up through, uh, through David and they, they continue to be a thorn in the side. But here they're, they're being introduced of who they are and their relationship with the um, ancestors of the Jews as they're getting ready to enter the promised land. So there's some of that background being filled in for them as well. Let me pray and we'll be done. Lord, we just thank you. I thought I'd silence that. Lord, we thank you so much uh, for your word. And we thank you for these stories that they are written for us that we may have learning, not just that we may have a historical learning, Lord, but we can learn about who you are and who we are as people and the way you make promises and keep them and fulfill them and that you are working towards uh, as we look forward, look, working towards your kingdom now, um, working towards your son being on his throne, working towards uh, an eventual fulfillment of all the promises you have made. And it's exciting for us, Lord, because uh, all that you have said, you will, you will do. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, we see in Abraham and in Sarah um, our own faults and our own weaknesses, and even in Hagar and Ishmael, as to the point of death, uh, they uh, believed that they would die rather than uh, inherit the promise of Ishmael being a great nation, Lord. I pray that we would see that we ourselves, um, if left to our own devices, would doubt you and, and would flounder in this world. But instead, Lord, you have acted kindly and graciously on us. And and, I, and reminded us of your promises. Pray that we'd recognize when we lay hold of those, we're doing, those, doing that strictly through your grace and mercy upon us to even lay hold of the promises. Lord, I just pray that you'll be with us as we turn now to the worship of you and your son. It's in his name we pray, amen.